I'll be reading from the King James, New King James Version this morning. We're doing Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 25. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 25. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? That's better. Sorry about that. Good to be here. I want to reiterate that. Um, and also want to spend a little bit more time uh, talking about Kyle. Uh, not in a bad way. I really, I have a deep appreciation for Kyle. I always have. He was a very innovative uh, youth minister as we were kind of growing up together. Um, trying to think of ways to um, uh, to articulate the lessons and that sort of thing. I always, uh, always looked up to him, uh, his abilities and, and that sort of thing. And, and honestly, I thank God for my friendship. And I wanted you to know that, Kyle, uh, in front of all these people. <clears throat> you know, maybe raises be in the future, that sort of thing. I don't know. It's all that sort of, you know, good publicity for you. Um, I also really enjoy being here today. Um, it's a great, um, I guess, reunion uh, for, for us and some fantastic friends that live up in this area. I mentioned that in class, won't uh, belabor that point, but um, one of our greatest memories is um, I actually was fortunate enough to uh, do their wedding, Brandon and Emily Clark. And uh, my oldest son, who I now look up to, um, uh, was their ring bearer as a little child, and he danced his way down the aisle, and then halfway down the aisle, he decided he was going to sit down and have a picnic. And so, um, just wonderful <laughs> memories, and I had to go down there with Bible and notebook and everything and haul him up on the stage and that sort of thing. Uh, so that's fun. But then it's also uh, neat to be able to see people that I've known ever since I was... Uh, a wee young and uh, I don't know that I was ever small, but I was short, still am short. But uh, Billy and Gloria, it's good to see you guys. Um, and uh, I kind of grew up when they were in Mobile, and then uh, Billy's parents live in Enterprise where we served. Uh, so we, you know, 
uh, got connections with that family. It's good to see you guys. <clears throat> when, um, when I was in 10th grade, I was a second string catcher on our baseball team. And we had a crosstown rival that fancied itself as the baseball program in Mobile. And if you know anything about Mobile, Alabama, there's probably a lot of things that we're not good at. But don't you dare go up against us in sports, because we will put out an athlete, okay? Um, you know, a lot of players in the SEC right now came out of Mobile. A lot of famous baseball players, <coughs> Karen, um, came from Mobile and that sort of thing. You know, we, we, will, we will create athletes in Mobile. And this program that we were playing fancied itself as the baseball program in Mobile. And so they tried to recruit kids and that sort of thing. We were more of a football program. Um, we weren't putting out any prospects, but we flat sure were winning. And then along comes the class that I was in that had a bunch of special guys that I got to play with. Um, little bitty old private school signed nine guys out of our class, you know, college scholarships and that sort of thing. It was you know, pretty remarkable. Um, when I was a 10th grader, I had a catcher in front of me that had a pop time that was incredible. It was pro level. He could, he could snap a ball down to second base. He just didn't do anything with it. I uh, don't know what he's doing these days, but I was behind him. He was phenomenal. And his arm was so good that uh, we had never pitched him before, and then we never pitched him again. But against our arch rival, the baseball program in Mobile, Alabama, our coaches threw a curveball to the other program, and we pitched the starting catcher, and I caught him. And it was the second game of the day that I caught. I caught uh, the first game with the JV teams playing each other. Our JV team, 10-run ruled their JV team. <clears throat> and uh, I batted 1,000 that game and drove in five runs. And then I started uh, that varsity game. That varsity game, our starting catcher shut them out. So that's a little spoiler there. You know the results of the game now. But he and I worked together, and he was on fire that night. His fastball was untouchable. His curveball just fell off the table. And then he had a changeup that I had no idea where it came from, but he would just absolutely freeze people uh, in, their, in their batting attempts and that sort of thing. Um, and there was, I went, uh, let's see, I went four for four that night. We won the game two to nothing, and I drove in both runs. And um, I was, as a sophomore, I was named player of the week in Mobile County. Um, and, you know, it was like, whoa, where did that come from? Because the guy in front of me is ten times better than I am, but cool. You know, he was a starting pitcher, but I got the nod, you know, in the, in the paper that week. Um, and that was, man, that was awesome. By the way, that program put out a young man, y'all might know him around here by the name of Josh Donaldson. Uh, I don't know if you know that guy or not. Some of y'all may still like him. Some of y'all may not like him because he took the money and ran, took his talents to Minnesota, I think, right? Uh, but anyway, uh, that's kind of the caliber of that program. The very next week, we played a team from over in Pensacola that was actually from right down the road where 
Kyle used to serve in the Scenic Hills. And we went from playing the baseball program in Mobile to playing a team that looked like they came straight out of the movie Sandlot. I mean, they struggled and they walked up and we were like, seriously? We gotta play these guys? And I went four for four that game. I nearly hit the first home run of my career, but there was a massive wind blowing in from right field. I was a left-hander. And everybody in the park thought the thing was gone, including the right fielder. He went up against the fence and was just watching it, and all of a sudden the ball just died and hit the fence right beside him. He was like, ah! And grabbed the ball and threw it back in, and I got a double out of him, uh, just a smash home run. I had a pretty good series of games, and I was really excited about the way things were going. We were about to 10-run rule that massively inferior team. And they were trying to prevent that from happening, so they got really aggressive on the base paths. And back in the game against the baseball program, in the last inning, the coach was trying to produce some runs. And he sent a guy from second to third. And I wasn't quite sure of myself. And I came up, and I was ready to fire and I held the ball. And my coaches, was, they were furious with me for not throwing the guy out, but I just wasn't confident. So I held the ball and I trusted my pitcher instead of trusting my arm. Turns out it was the right call. He set the next two batters down, they never scored. In the game against the massively inferior team, kid tries to steal third. I said, okay, I got in trouble last game, I'm going for this one. And I chunked it down there. They teach you as a catcher to throw so hard that your mask falls off. If, you, if it doesn't fall off, you're not doing the right thing. I threw it as hard as I could. And I expected the umpire to be like, and call it and let's go jogging to the dugout for out three. But instead, I hear the wrong crowd start cheering. And I look up and the ball is sailing uh, you know, <laughs> in foul territory out in left field. And the guy basically just walks home. Well, there goes our 10 run, you know, rule and all that kind of stuff. Man, got mad at myself, that sort of thing. So I was walking in the dugout really, really upset with myself after that. And one of my coaches uh, was, he coached a lot of different things. And he was my offensive line coach in football, so he was very aggressive, had a very deep voice, that sort of thing. And instead of letting me go into the dugout, he dragged me by my catcher's gear out to third base. And he took a football tactic and he applied it to baseball. And he chewed me out, standing right next to third, where that out should have occurred. Challenged my manhood, told me to grow up, be a man, all that sort of stuff. And there was nothing I could say. It was a mistake seen by the world. The problem with that is in football, if you irritate your players enough as a coach, you can take that energy that you internalize and some linebacker out there or some defensive end out there is going to pay the price when you come out of your stance, you go up in the hole and you break their face mask because you can, you can out-process everything that your coach just chewed you out about. But baseball is a game of finesse. Baseball is a game of a lot of mental 
and physio physiological coordination all happening, happening in microscopic movements. That being said, I developed a case of what's called the yips. And if you don't know what the yips are, watch, you can Google Mackie Sasser. He was a professional catcher back in the 90s for the Mets. He got hit at the plate, and he's famous for this now. But he got hit at the plate, and he never could throw the ball back to the pitcher after that. He would sit there and just, just freeze. And it got the same for me. And so for me, instead of pow, framing a pitch and popping it back to the pitcher, the rest of my catching career, I had this, this microscopic moment of anxiety that affected my throwing hand that made me spasm and not, make, not let me throw down correctly. So I would sit there, and instead of popping it back to the pitcher and letting him have a good time, and I would act like I was, you know, lobbing a basketball to him, and it drove some of my pitchers crazy. It's a microscopic moment of anxiety is what causes that. Now, tell you another story. Because we're here this week and because up north of here, y'all have such beautiful natural resources, we took a little vacation this week with our family. We were hiking up to Anaruby Falls and that sort of thing this week. And my wife and I are, are we think we're funny people. Would you agree? We, we think we're funny. Um, not everybody does, um, and that's okay. Not everybody thinks that we are funny, um, sometimes including but not limited to our children. And um, we were walking up the trail to Annie Ruby Falls, and, you know, it occurred to me that we're in the mountains, and I love some John Denver, and so I start singing Country Roads Take Me Home singing about mountain mama and all that kind of stuff. But the beautiful thing about being out in nature and the beautiful thing about hitting high notes is that you don't have to sing quietly. And so I chose not to sing very quietly. In fact, <clears throat> the reason why I have this bottle of water with me this morning is because I shredded my vocal cords. I was singing so very loud, country roads take me home. I now have a 13-year-old son. If you remember your 13-year-old years, you're very concerned about things. <clears throat> you're very concerned about perceptions and that sort of thing. And so all of a sudden, the family hike began to be more of a couple's hike as the 13-year-old just kind of skirted along, trying to pretend like he was a lonesome child out on the trail, you know, separating himself from his family because... He had anxiety about what passersby would think about the exceptionally messed up parents that he had. <laughs> One more, and I'll be done with these. Two years after my baseball incident, uh, my senior year in football, same, same coach, um, actually, uh, but in football. And we were watching tape for, from a team in Selma, Alabama, and this team just had just a bunch of corn-fed country boys on there, and they were huge. Some of them were mean, uh, but they could all play pretty well. 
the guy that we saw on film that week that I was to face reminded me, if you remember the scene in Star Wars, specifically Return of the Jedi, as Luke is dressed up and he is sneaking into Jabba the Hutt's lair, and he's got those two rhinoceros-looking guys as guards out there. That's what the guy that I had to block was built like. And if I'm being honest, that's probably what he smelled like, too. Um, but that's a different story. And he had a twin, and they were called the Riley twins. And they were honestly, you know, men amongst boys. And so we were watching film that week. And that same coach took a laser pointer and showed us the film of their defensive line. He said, Butts, if you don't man up this week, that Riley boy is going to make you a puddle of guts and blood out on the field, and you're not going to be letting you able to drive back home to Mobile after this game because you're going to die on the field that night because that man will kill you and probably eat you and then smile about it and look at your mom, you know, and, and that sort of thing. Made up this incredible scenario of how he was just going to absolutely slaughter me on the field to the point that when I stepped out on the field, I had an incredible amount of anxiety that I used to create adrenaline, which I used to then seal him off from the holes, and our running back rushed for 250 yards that night off of the four and six hole, and we destroyed them. Anxiety was used in three different situations just then. One caused a problem, one caused some embarrassment, one caused success. But let me ask you this. Did I sin against the commandment of Jesus by having anxiety in those situations? And again, I want you, if you were in class, I asked you a rhetorical question where I wanted you to answer that in your head. But behind the screen, you'll see what the ESV says. I noticed the New King James says, do not worry. ESV says, do not be anxious in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. So I want to ask you again, in those moments where I had anxiety and developed the yips, and when I had anxiety and used that to seal off the holes against the six foot two, 295 pound Riley twin, and that sort of thing, did I sin against a clear commandment of Jesus Christ? I'm gonna come back to why I'm asking that question um, because I think that a lot of us deal with that. So let's read again Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. It says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? So I want to talk this morning to you about, and we're, we're going to get to a slide in just a couple of slides where I'm actually going to talk about this more specifically but I want to talk to you this morning about what Jesus is actually saying there. Because one of the things that I found out in those contracts with churches and that sort of thing that I've been fortunate enough to have when I began talking with Christians 
is that when somebody came in and presented with generalized anxiety disorder, it's not simply that we're having to deal with generalized anxiety disorder or PTSD. We're having to deal with shame because I'm obviously sinning. I'm in a state of sin because I've got this diagnosis of F41.1 generalized anxiety disorder. You know, so I need, I need help to get over this so that I stop sinning against Jesus Christ. And that made me really look into what Jesus is actually saying here. So I want to switch and talk to you technically what we're talking about here with the diagnosis and then talk parallel about this diagnosis and passages, passages or this passage of Scripture. DSM-5 criteria for generalized anxiety disorder is uh, excessive, excessive anxiety or worry more days than not for six months. Uh, where you have difficult, uh, difficulty controlling worry and a minimum, of the, a minimum of three of the following. Restlessness or feeling keyed up on edge, being easily fatigued, difficulty concentrating, being irritable, muscle tension, sleep disturbance. This must be clinically significant uh, in its distress on your social life, your job performance, etc not to be attributed to substance abuse and not to be attributed to another mental health disorder. So when you're dealing with somebody clinically that comes in and presents with generalized anxiety disorder and they're a Christian, I hold that it is not the same thing that Jesus was talking about on the Sermon on the Mount and what we're talking about in a clinical situation. <clears throat> so I want to go back and read what the scripture actually says. The preacher in Robertsdale, where we attend, has a little saying, and I've, I've said it differently, but he, this is so much more succinct. Whenever you read the word therefore in scripture, look back in the passages to see what it is there for. Therefore, Jesus says in uh, verse 25. He's referring back to 19 through 24. Do not lay out for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Skipping down to verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, do not be anxious. Now, I want to introduce to you exactly what Jesus is saying here when he says in the New King James, do not worry, or in the ESV when he says, do not be anxious, he uses a Greek word, and I'm not phenomenal with the Greek, and I actually have a high level of confidence that I will mess up the pronunciation of this word. But uh, the Greek word for anxious that, or worry that he uses there is meramnau, which if you were to look that up, it means properly drawn in opposite directions. The Sermon on the Mount Jesus is giving people an introductory look into kingdom life. It's not 
about strict adherence to the old law and the more. Here's a new set of ethics. Here's a new set of theology about life in the kingdom of God if you are a follower of mine. Therefore, when you used to worry about money and that sort of thing, you used to just go do a sacrifice. We don't do that anymore. You can't serve as a, as a kingdom member. You can't serve money. You can't just sell yourself out for money and do kingdom life. Therefore, don't be drawn in two opposite directions. You can't do that. You will hate one and love the other. You'll despise one and love the other. But attempting to do both as a child of the king of kings in the kingdom of God is a miserable experience. He's warning against the opposite draw of being overly concerned with easily settled earthly things and attempting to be a wholehearted follower at the same time. Money needs to be in its proper place. Jesus needs to be on the throne of you. He needs to be in the driver's seat. Money will take care of itself. He goes on and he talks about that. He talks about the birds. They don't worry. He talks about the flowers of the field. They don't worry. And yet there is rarely anything as beautiful on all the earth as the two things that he just cited. They don't worry. They just live their lives. And in the same way, the child of God needs to Focus on the fact that Jesus is the provider of all. He's not, uh, he's not dealing with what we talk about with anxiety today. So what are the effects on this and on us regarding this? There's a term that I learned in grad school called meta-anxiety. And what meta-anxiety is, I need to change that slide too, what meta-anxiety is, is this. It's anxiety about having anxiety. It's a compounding effect. And that's what I have found a lot of Christians to have. That's what I have worked with dozens and dozens of Christians in regard to their mental health. And brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you this morning that there is freedom offered from that type of anxiety. If you're dealing with anxieties, whether it be microscopic, momentary, acute anxiety like I was dealing with that developed into the yips for me, or whether you're dealing with chronic anxiety because there's some kind of coping mechanism that has gone awry within your psyche, we're not dealing with a sin problem there. You're not going against the command of Jesus. Jesus was telling us, don't be drawn in two different directions in regard to money. And it got translated into the word worry and anxiety. So the first thing that I'm here to do today is to help you cope with meta-anxiety that you may have that may cause you to do what we talked about in the Bible class about an hour ago where we walk in and we give everybody the God doing good, brother, how are you? Sunday morning talk. That keeps us at a surface level because it, it keeps us embarrassed. It keeps us worried about judgment. What are they going to think of me? Are they going to think that I'm a sinner? Well, yeah, hey, we're all sinners. We've already dealt with that in Romans. 
But that's not what this is dealing with. We're talking about whether or not you're good, whether or not you're struggling, whether or not we're there for you when you're walking through your valley. And when we can let go of the anxiety about dealing with anxiety, we can be more connective and more real with each other, which if we're going to be the church of the first century, that is 100% what they did. I'm not sure how pleased those Christians would be with our Sunday morning faces that we make. I'm going to take you to a next slide. And I'm going to put this up there, and I know that this may bring up some questions, and I wish I had a ton of time to talk about this. But a lot of anxiety, and, and some people even say most anxiety, comes from actual coping mechanisms. Because here's the fact. Anxiety is God-given. You ever heard of fight-or-flight syndrome? That's anxiety, okay? You get a dog running at you, barking, and you see sharp teeth coming at you and that sort of thing, and you get out of dodge, anxiety caused you to do that. Because if you're just like, huh, look at that dog. Oh, man, that hurt. You know, you wouldn't be able to protect yourself. Anxiety causes you to do that. Anxiety is part of what God gave us in our central nervous system. It is there to help. So having anxiety does not mean that you are an inherently broken person. When you begin to deal with anxiety more and more, and it becomes stronger and stronger and stronger, one of the things that occurs along the way is that some coping mechanisms actually feed into the anxiety um, and help prolong it. One of those things is probably stems from what we were talking about earlier with attachment stuff and a lack of self-belief. When we look for approval for ourselves through the feedback of other people, we have an anxiety loop that is occurring because we constantly need that feedback to build up ourselves. So lack of self-belief, seeking to verify that we are a person of value through the feedback of other people is a possible cause. There's a psychologist named Mark Rose, and I was doing a class with him uh, earlier this year, and he talks about the use of safety signals Safety signals is what he defines as people or objects that are used by a person dealing with anxiety to avoid confronting the, the thing that they are anxious about. Okay? So people can be used as a safety signal. People can be used as a faulty mechanism to handle anxiety. Your phones can be used as a faulty mechanism of anxiety. And we talked about that in the class, but it is 100% one of the leading things to the epidemic of mood disorders these days because a lot of times what we do, and trust me, adults, we want to say, these kids these days, uh-uh. Um, mm -mm. Put a timer on yourself and see how often you've got to go to your phone. Adults struggle with it just as much as teenagers. But those things are called safety signals where you are avoidant 
of the things that make you anxious and therefore you don't ever confront the things that make you anxious. Therefore, the anxiety is prolonged and becomes a pattern of your life. And then there's also family patterns. <clears throat> a lot of families feed into anxiety for the individuals. So I need to ask some advice from people. What time am I supposed to end? Now? I'm good? I got another hour? Okay. <laughs> Make y'all more thankful for college. All right, so, um, uh, but seriously, five, ten minutes, wrap it up, hush. All right, we'll, we'll do that. So let me go through this. This comes from a, a, a certain field of therapy, okay? But it is also extremely biblical. One of the things that we do within ourselves is, is called distorted thinking. And it's where we take the external things, we interpret it differently, we internalize it, and then we assign a meaning to it. And there's a lot of different uh, cognitive distortions that people use, okay? And maybe I can go back over this some with y'all tonight because I'm going to have to speed through this, but this is extremely important. These are about 10 cognitive distortions. You can look up Dr. David Burns. He's a lead cognitive behavior therapist, and he has these on most of his websites. He also has a book called Feeling Good. That's a great title, that sort of thing. But a lot of us think in dichotomous terms or all-or-nothing thinking. And when you think uh, about yourself or the world in black and white or all-or-nothing categories, shades of gray don't exist. There are no other possibilities other than absolutes, and therefore you are either a success or, or a failure. You can't look at setbacks as something to learn from, and therefore you can dim yourself. Overgeneralization is when you think about a negative event as a never-ending pattern of defeat or a positive event as a never-ending pattern of success. Your narrative gets built. Well, I shouldn't be experiencing that because I won last week, therefore I'm the greatest. Why did I lose tonight? And it rocks you. Mental filtering is when you think exclusively about your shortcomings and ignore your positive qualities and accomplishments, or you do or you dwell on the positives and overlook the negatives. Discounting the positives is very similar. You tell yourself that negatives or positive facts don't count so as to maintain a universally negative or positive self-image. Mind reading or jumping to conclusions. You jump to conclusions that aren't warranted by the facts. There are two common forms of uh, of, of uh, jumping to conclusions, which is mind reading and fortune telling. Uh, mind reading, you make assumptions about how other people are thinking and feeling. Uh, and fortune telling, you make dogmatic negative or positive predictions about the future. Magnification is where you blow things out of proportion or shrink their importance inappropriately. It's called the binocular trick where you're either magnifying at one end or minimizing it looking through the other end to where small details are greater or smaller than they actually are. Emotional reasoning is when it's real. It has to be. That's how you feel. And that's an easy one to, to understand. And I want to spend a little bit more time on this next one because this, dear Christians, is where most of us dwell. 
because a lot of our internal talk centers around should statements. I should want to do better. I should be a better Christian. I should be over this by now. I should da-da-da-da-da. And every time you talk to yourself like that, it feeds into the depression and anxiety loop. Labeling is when you label yourselves or others. Labeling is actually an extreme form of overgeneralization because you see your entire self or essence as defective and globally bad or superior. And then finally, blame. You find fault with yourself, but the way it comes out quite often is you find fault with other people because you judge yourself so much. And the trick to all of that is to learn to reframe. In Christianity and in psychology, there's a lot of talk about how you think about what you think. That's why in Philippians, Paul talks about focus on good things. Focus on beautiful things. Focus on encouraging and positive things and that sort of thing. But in, in, in session, what I teach people is this. I have a chart where we talk about activating events. I have a chart about where we label our automatic negative thought. We learn to label that cognitive distortion. We learn to recognize what's going on in your life. And then this last column over here is a column where we learn to reframe, where you learn to look at other more positive possibilities other than the negative interpretation of what you have. And you may be sitting here thinking about like, oh, yeah, I know that's probably what they're doing. But I want you to accept the challenge today to reflect on yourself. This isn't about the teenager that you're thinking is struggling. This isn't about your family member that's the black sheep. This isn't about somebody at work. This is about you. This is about me. Because the thing is, is that we all use cognitive distortions at a time. We use it to drive us a little bit. We talk down to ourselves as though there's a coach in our head that tells us what we should be doing. When we learn to reframe our interpretations, we can see things in a much less pressure-inducing way. We can relax a little bit. We can be thankful a little bit more. We can accept the fact that beyond this moment that we are interpreting and experiencing, our Almighty God has a plan. And therefore, we can learn to trust the peace that passes understanding rather than our interpretation. So this morning, I was struggling with exactly what the invitation should be for a sermon such as this. Because my point is that you're not sinning by having anxiety. But if you need to talk about that, this is a great time. My point in class is that you're not sinning by having or struggling through depression. But if you need to talk about that because you want to take maybe a blind step out and trust your faith family this morning and talk about some things that you're struggling with, this would be a time for that. 
But if maybe some of the way that you're thinking about some of the things in life has caused you to act in ways that you know are sinful, this would be a moment in time to come forward and have prayers for that. I do know this, that our God is almighty. And I do know this, that tomorrow, if he chooses, the sun will rise and life will go on and you're going to be a blessed child of his. If he chooses for the sun to not rise, we'll be in the presence of the Almighty forever. And so if you want to live in that peace this morning, we would love to extend this invitation to you as together we stand and sing. Why from the sunshine of love will thou roam farther and farther away? Calling today, calling today, Jesus is calling, is tenderly calling today. Jesus is calling the weary to rest, calling today, calling today. Bring him thy burden and thou shalt be blessed, he will not turn thee away. <coughs> calling today, calling today, Jesus is calling, is tenderly calling today. Jesus is pleading, oh, list to his voice. Hear him today, hear him today. They who believe on his name shall rejoice. Quickly arise and away. Calling today, calling today. Jesus is calling. Thank you, Brother Butts, for that wonderful lesson, both wonderful lessons today. Looking forward to your lesson this evening. Uh, I want to thank everybody for being here this morning, uh, you know, our members especially, but also our visitors, uh, everybody who came in to visit with us this morning or visiting online with us. Uh, hopefully you'll stick around afterwards and we'll get to know you a little bit. Uh, we'd like to encourage you to be back with us this, uh, this evening here, Brother Butts' lesson uh, tonight about addiction uh, at 6 p.m. tonight. Um, our closing song this morning will be number 523. Our God, he is alive. Number 523. And after this song, we're going to be seated. Uh, Scott Sitton has a, a, a quick announcement for us. So we'll sing the first and last verses of 523. <clears throat> there is beyond the azure blue A God concealed from human sight He tended skies with heavenly hue And framed the worlds with his grace God. He is alive. In him we live and we survive. From dust our God created man. He is our God, the great I am. Our 
a life was willing there to give that he from sin might set man free and evermore with him could live there is a god he is alive and him we live and we survive from dust our Our Father, you are truly the great I am. We, we recognize you as our King, our Creator. We give you all the glory, Father, and we pray that we can show some of your glory through our lives and in our relationships with our brothers and sisters and with those that haven't found you. Help us, Father, to share the good news of the great I am. Father, we pray that you'll bless us as we take the messages that we've heard today and the one we'll hear tonight and help us to understand, Father, that some of the things that really drag us down and, and cause us so much concern and worry and anxiousness, Father, that um, we need to understand these things. And Father, help us to understand that there are people we can talk to and help us through difficult times like depression and, and anxiety and worry. And we just uh, pray that we'll look to you, that we'll look to your word, and that we'll look to our brothers and sisters for assistance and help in these kind of things and help us to cope and that help us to understand that there are many people struggling with these kind of issues and we are not alone. Father, we love you. We love your son, Jesus. We thank you for his great sacrifice. We pray that you be with us as we leave this building and help us to hold your name up everywhere we go. And it's through Jesus we pray. Amen. <laughs> 